Hey, welcome to Southern Hospitality. I'm Josh. And I'm Blake. And we got some more spooky stories for you from the South. We sure do. And Blake, do you want me to go ahead and start us off today? Before we get into our stories, I do want to make a quick note that after listening back to myself talk while doing lots of editing, I'm going to try and not put so many odd emphases or emphasize my uh, sentences in weird places. So I'll try it in case that was getting on anyone's nerves. I'm going to try and like normalize my talking, if that makes sense. It'll just be monotone like me. I don't think that's a bad thing. Nope. Some worlds, I guess it works out fine. Yeah, maybe people would like to go to sleep to our podcast more if it's more like monotone and normal. I don't know if the goal of a spooky story podcast is to help (laughs) people fall asleep at night. I think that might be maybe not the best listener that we have a one hour podcast and they fall asleep five minutes in. Some people fall asleep to the true crime ones too. I guess it wouldn't be that bad as long as they leave it running. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like, uh, I think it was James Corden on his late show used to be like, you know, if you got to fall asleep, please just keep your TV on. We need the views. Oh, yeah. <laughs> of course, he's not on anymore. That's also true. Anyway, let's get into <laughs> what everyone is here for. Spooky stories. Yeah. So I'll kick us off this week since you started us off last week. Sounds good. And I believe your story from what you told me is pretty lengthy. So there is a chance it could be a two-parter on your part. So Yes, just a heads up, everyone. It's well, a long story. My story is a little bit shorter than my last two, so... Yeah, we might be able to fit them both into one episode. We'll see. We'll see. All right, so I'll kick us off. So my story this week, and by the way, I try to pick out a new area of the South each week. That way we don't, since we're new, I don't want to end up with, you know, all my stories being in one state or Florida or Savannah or somewhere like that, where they're all just in one spooky location. So I did try to like diversify these a little bit. So my story this week's taken us to somewhere we haven't been yet, and that would be Tennessee. (gasps) My story is taking us to Tennessee too. This oh my week. gosh. We didn't plan that actually. No, it's just didn't. coincidence that we happened to pick Tennessee stories. But Great oh, well. Minds. oh well. So my story is taking us to a city in Tennessee that's known as the home of the blues and the birthplace of rock and roll. Any chance you know what that city is? Nashville. Nope. What? Nashville's like the home of like country music, isn't it? Oh. The country music capital of the world or something like that. Oh, oh no. Where so are we going then? The home of the blues and the birthplace of rock and roll is Memphis, Tennessee. Oh. Close. I mean, they're both in Tennessee, but hmm. but it's also home to some great barbecue if you've not had it from there. They kind of have their own regional barbecue. And uh, Is that the mustard-based one? No, the mustard, I think that's South Carolina. Oh, okay. We'll we'll talk about that a little bit when we do a South Carolina story. We haven't done one yet. (laughs) Well, what's the barbecue style they have in Memphis? It's kind of smoky, a little spicy. Mm. Yeah. It's kind of like Kansas City style barbecue. It's similar when I've had it. Sounds good. I don't want to get too far out here. We're not a barbecue podcast. No, but we do enjoy food. We do. So I am excited about my story this week too, not just because... You know, there's a good barbecue in Memphis. That's the last time I'll talk about barbecue in this entire story, by the way. But my story takes place in a haunted bar. And it's our first story so far that's been in a haunted bar, I believe. Ooh. Yeah. And I was thinking as I was writing this that maybe once we get a little more listeners here, we should go on tour and visit all of the haunted bars in the South and report back. That would be a very long tour. Yeah, I thought it'd be sort of like a civil duty to our listeners. That we go out there, do all the hard work on the ground, and go out to all these bars and let them know, you know, are they haunted or not. We'll have to do videos or lives there so that it's more rewarding. Yeah. Or at least more entertaining. 
So I just want to throw that idea out there for a future reference. That's fun. So the name of the bar I'll be talking about today is called Ernestine and Hazel's. And this bar is located downtown Memphis at 531 South Main Street. And I give you the address just because, you know, you can actually still visit this bar today. It's open under that name today. Cool. So I definitely like to go visit. Okay. And they brand themselves as uh, one of the best dive bars in the world. Interesting. They say that. I didn't say that. I don't know if anywhere else actually said that, but they call themselves the best dive bar in the world. In Memphis, I do Tennessee. love dive bars. <laughs> I do too, but that's a pretty bold statement. It is. We'll have to go and verify it. Exactly. So I'm going to kick off my story as we do with a little bit of history before I get into the hauntings. In the mid to late 1800s, before the building that would eventually become Ernestine and Hazel's was built at 531 South Main Street, the site was home to a church. It was said the church was plagued with bad luck. For example, in the early 1900s, a young girl fell down the stairs and died. The following year, the entire church mysteriously burned down. Wow. No, that is bad luck. 25 years later, in the 1930s, a man named Abe Plow, which I could be pronouncing that last name wrong, but I'm just going to call him that for now. Well, he opened a pharmacy at the site that was formerly the church. And Abe Plow himself has a pretty interesting history. I'd never heard of the guy, but I was like, you know, I started reading a little bit on him and went to some other sources that were completely unrelated to hauntings and history just to be like, who's this Abe Plow guy? And I'm not going to cover everything about him here because you could probably honestly do a whole podcast episode about him if you're doing like you know, a business podcast or something. He's a really interesting dude. But I do want to give like a quick summary just because he was, you know, an owner of this building in the past and kind of, I mean, he built the whole building and opened the original pharmacy that was there after the church. So uh, I want to give just a very brief history on Abe Plow. So when Abe Plow was a teenager in 1908, he actually created an antiseptic healing oil that he bottled and sold door to door. And he found quick success with this product. I don't know much about the product other than that it was antiseptic healing oil, but people apparently liked it, bought it. it might have been a snake oil thing. I don't know. I was going to ask if it was like a snake oil or a proven thing, like it actually worked. I have a feeling it wasn't proven at that time, but uh, I don't know if it worked or not for people. I doubt it went through any clinical trials in 1908. Fair. But he did find success with that product. And I'm fast forwarding a bunch here because I'm not going to get too deep into it. But he ended up having a 65-year career. And he would continue to develop toiletries and other cosmetic products like that. And he'd grow from a small manufacturer to a multinational company. I wanted to name some of the uh, famous products that his later companies were accredited with. These include Coppertone Suntan Lotion, St. Joseph Aspirin, and Maybelline Cosmetics. These are all companies that he started wow. that created these products. He's, he's a big deal. <laughs> he is a big deal. All of those are still pretty huge yeah, names. they are. All that's to say... This guy had an amazing career and made a ton of money over his career. I can imagine. Uh, when he decided to retire, he actually gave the pharmacy building to Ernestine Mitchell and Hazel Jones, who at the time were renting a space upstairs in the pharmacy to use as their hair salon. And I was thinking, that's a pretty good deal. You know, you're rich when you're giving away buildings. That's true. These weren't his kids. They weren't relatives. They just rented the place. He's like, here, you can have the building. I'm retiring. That's the best landlord ever. No one That's would ever do that. You know, no one would do that now. <laughs> no. Yeah. I mean, he didn't die. He just like retired. Oh. So here's the building. It's all yours. So sweet. And upon acquiring the building, Ernestine and Hazel converted the former pharmacy downstairs into a jazz cafe. So very different business. While continuing to run their salon upstairs. In addition to the salon, there was one other business they ran upstairs, and that would be a brothel. Oh. 
Now, it's not clear if Ernestine Hazel actively ran this brothel or if they just rented out the upstairs. There, there were some extra rooms up there, so um, some sources say maybe they just rented out the upstairs rooms and kind of turned a blind eye to what was going on. Hmm. I couldn't find any evidence either way, but I kind of found a little bit of both saying, oh, they were running this. Others were like, oh, they're just renting the rooms out and people just turned it into a brothel, sort of. Huh. But they knew it was going on. I mean, like They worked there every day. They'd have to know. Oh, yeah. So back to the Jazz Cafe. So Ernestine's husband worked as a street promoter who went by the name of Sunbeam. No clue how he got that name. <laughs> he opened a music hall nearby called Club Paradise, where they hosted some really big names at the time in music. Um, these names included B.B. King, Tina Turner, Aretha Franklin, Motown, Ray Charles, Bo Diddley, Sam Cooke, Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards and many more. But these are like, wow, it just shows you how big of names. These are like the Taylor Swift's of their time. Yes. Oh my gosh. That's incredible. Yeah. So these famous musicians would go and perform at that club that was owned by Ernestine's husband. And then after their performance, they would walk over to Ernestine and Hazel's to hang out. They'd grab a bite to eat. They'd have a drink and just, you know, chill and Probably doing a little bit more considering that it was a brothel upstairs. <laughs> that was the happening place, though. If all those big name people, like, if that's where the after parties were, oh my gosh, that must yeah. have been crazy. So I, I don't know if it's, like, hard for a regular person to get in, but if it's not, I'm sure, like, people were really wanting to be there just to get, like, a glimpse of these, like, celebrities. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so that's, that's crazy to think about. Yeah. Oh, on that note, it was reported that Ray Charles actually frequented the bar, and you'd often find him upstairs Hanging out with the sex workers and doing heroin. Ah. So found that in multiple sources. Interesting. So yeah, he was a big customer there. <laughs> this flow of uh, these famous musicians over to Ernestine Hazel's went on for a solid 20 years. You know, for these two, their business was really booming at this time. They had this constant flow of all this fame going over there, and that brought in a lot of other people, and business was just good. Things took a turn um, in the 1970s. So at that time, downtown Memphis went into a downward spiral which started in the late 60s, and that was partially accelerated by the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., who was killed at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis in 1968. Um, and then this downward spiral, which started in the 60s, went all the way through the 70s. And I was curious what all caused the downward spiral. I mean, the Martin Luther King Jr. assassination was certainly you know part of it, but there were a lot of other things that came into play, it turned out. So some of the biggest things, which, you know, these things are never straightforward. There's always a bunch of different complex factors involved, but racial tensions at the time was a really big one. There was a lot of segregation, then desegregation, then segregation again. It just kind of went back and forth a lot there at that time. And there was also an interstate that was built. I think it was Interstate 40. So Interstate 40 runs through there, and it was built, and that allowed a lot of people who had money to just live out in the suburbs and stay out in the suburbs with their money. And they would just would use that interstate system. They didn't need to go downtown Memphis anymore. So like just downtown Memphis just sort of dried up from a business standpoint. That is all around heartbreaking. Yeah. So during this period of economic decline, many businesses downtown Memphis closed their doors permanently. And this included Club Paradise. And as you can imagine, the closing of Club Paradise, you know, the stars weren't coming there anymore and walking over to Ernestine Hazel's. So this had a big impact on Ernestine Hazel's business as well. And I also read that the brothel, which, you know, did draw some kind of crowd at the time, it became more of a deterrent eventually because it kind of drew in a crowd that a lot of customers didn't want to be around. You know, it became a rough bar, basically. It went from a bar hosting celebrities where the brothel was, I guess, not seen as a bad thing to just being one of those bars where you probably don't want to walk in the door because 
there's some bad stuff going on type of thing. Wow, that's so intense. So it became a deterrent. There were a combination of factors that led to a business just declining for Ernestine Hazels in that time period. And some of those were out of their control. So this combination of headwinds for the business eventually led to Ernestine and Hazel closing their business in the 1980s. And then their business was purchased in 1992 by two guys named Bud Cheatham or Cheatham. No clue how to pronounce his names. I wish I could get more easy names. <laughs> and uh, so it's purchased by two guys named Bud Cheatham and Elmer George. George is easier. George is easy. I like Elmer George. Yeah. <laughs> a couple years later, they brought on a guy named Russell George who at the time ran another bar in the area that was doing well. And from my understanding, these three gentlemen all owned the bar, but uh, Russell was the main like operator and sort of the face of the business at the time. I'll be talking mainly about Russell and not about the other two. They were sort of like passive owners or something like that. So you don't find much else about them. I did find eventually one of their daughters, I think, inherited it. So, But other than that, I think they were kind of passive owners and Russell was like the face of the business at this time. So he was the boss that was like always there and yeah. the other two would just like stop in. The other two had money, owned it, but they didn't work in there in any way. This guy like lived and breathed in there. That makes sense. Yeah. So with Russell being the main operator of the bar, the first task for him was to renovate the place. After all, it had been closed down for a while. It's kind of gotten rough and decrepit down there. Um, and from what I read, it took about a year to get it all renovated and back open. And during this time he was renovating it, Russell lived in the upstairs of the bar. Hmm. And I'll touch on that later because there were some spooky things that happened while he lived there. I can imagine. And the bar, after all the renovations, would open again to the public in 1993 on St. Patrick's Day, and it opened under its former name, Ernestine and Hazel's. Oh. And Russell George himself has a pretty interesting background, sort of like the Abe Plow guy, but very different background, but still interesting. <laughs> um, so I just want to briefly touch on his background, since he is sort of an important character in the history of this bar. So I mentioned that he owned a bar nearby before becoming a part owner of Ernestine Hazel's. So even before that, he owned another bar at the age of 15. Wow. It was called Jefferson in the Rear. What was the legal age to drink back then? Well, I don't think this bar was a legal operation. So Okay. It's kind of people just knew this guy owned the bar and, you know, just wasn't an illegal thing. But, you know, everyone on the streets that lived there knew. Huh. Interesting. Anyway, it's called Jefferson in the Rear. So kind of a funny name, too. And I think the reason for that, too, is because it was located on the backside of a building on Jefferson Street. Ah. That's kind of a good uh, teenager A good choice play of, on words, <laughs> yeah, too. Jefferson in the Rear. <laughs> and he apparently ran the bar out of an apartment. Huh. So definitely not legal. No. So I think it's more like a speakeasy. and Probably not a fancy speakeasy. At least I don't get that impression because it's in an apartment. <laughs> <laughs> so in addition to be a bar owner... Russell was also an accomplished dancer. Huh. So when he was just 10 years old, he actually won a James Brown dance competition, which was actually judged by James Brown himself. Wow. So he's that good of a dancer that he wanted against all those other people. That's impressive. Yeah. And uh, in his 20s, he worked as a band manager and a dancer for the R&B group Icebreakers, which I'm not really too familiar with, but honestly don't listen to a ton of R&B music. Fair. I don't know if they're a big band or not. Like, I just don't know. I've never heard of them either. Yeah. Anyways, that's kind of a side story. As I mentioned, Russell fixed up the place and reopened in 1993. From what I could find, he really brought the place back to life. So as I mentioned, Russell fixed up the place and reopened in 1993. And from what I could find, he really brought life back into the bar and kind of made it a cool dive bar. It was never like a fancy bar by any means, but he made it like one of those cool dive bars that a lot of people love to go to. Cool. Yeah, as opposed to just a dive. 
<laughs> which I think is what it became eventually. And he even brought on a new menu item that you can order this day called the Soul Burger. Ooh. And I feel like I've talked about food twice in this podcast. I just <laughs> ate, but I feel like we're turning into a food podcast. Does it say what's on the burger? It kind of. It did actually become like an iconic meal. I mean, it's a meal. It's a burger only, but it became an iconic dish or so. Whatever. I don't even know how to say it. Food. I don't want to say an iconic burger. An iconic food. It became an uh, iconic food choice. Staple. Yeah. A so staple either way, it's an iconic sandwich. <laughs> Is a burger a sandwich? Yeah, it's between two pieces of bread. Hmm. The point is, he invented this. Well, he didn't Soul invent Burger. It. He invented this, the name Soul Burger, and that's something that lives on their menu to this day, and it's an iconic dish. I'm just going to leave it at dish. What's on it? From what I could find, it's basically just your standard burger with soul sauce. Oh. No clue what soul sauce is. Okay. I mean, it had a lot of good reviews, and there were, like, some other networks saying it's, like, the best burger in the South and stuff like that. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it looked, it looked pretty standard, honestly, but, I mean, it didn't look bad. It's just your simple burger. Okay. Yeah. But that burger is kind of important because, in a way, it did bring a lot of life back to the bar and a lot of money and kept the doors open for them. So something simple like that really made a difference for them. Huh. And the only reason I mentioned the Soul Burger is just because when I was reading the modern day history, like they have an entire section, not a section, there was an entire web page on their website that's titled Soul Burger. Like it's wow. a tab on their website. Soul Burger is a tab, not menu, Soul Burger. <laughs> so it's pretty important to them to this date. Okay, I don't want to get too far off topic into burgers. <laughs> I know, we just ate. It sounds like you're hungry. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if they're a burger podcast. I'm sure they are. I'm sure they are. So I only mentioned the Soul Burger because something as simple as this helped the business there stay alive and kept Ernestine Hazel's operating to this day. From what I read, the reason for that is because the Soul Burger was something that people would go to this bar and get at like 10 p.m. or 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. or something like that. This isn't a place you go eat it at 6 o'clock. I don't even know if they're open at 6 o'clock. They're like a late, late night bar, like an end of your night bar. When you've had a lot to drink already, you go to Ernestine Hazel's and get a Soul Burger. It's that kind of bar and dish. They like top off the night with, make sure you don't have a hangover the next yeah, day. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. Hmm. From what I read, Ernestine and Hazel's, like currently, they don't get busy until around 10 o'clock, they said. Hmm. There's a very late night bar type of vibe, and that's the burger was created there. And a lot of people apparently go there now and finish their night and get a burger and a drink and stuff like that. So something like that really helped out their bar, it turned out, from a business standpoint. Sounds nice. I was thinking about that too. And is, did you have a favorite late night food after like, you know, a night out on the town? The one that I took you to like on one of our first dates, the peanut butter hot dogs, the Jacob Criders that they have uh, yeah. at the hot dog stands in the corners of downtown Wilmington. I think it was peanut butter, hot sauce, mayonnaise, and Onions. raw onion. Yes. So good. Gives you some bad breath, I bet, though, doesn't it? Raw onions and hot sauce and peanut butter and mayonnaise. I mean, and that was one of our first date meals. Well, I guess it worked out fine. I guess if you both eat it, it's fine. That's true. Just one person it eats evened it. evened out. I don't know. What about you? Mm. I used to really like White Castle when I lived in Indiana. Because they're perfect size. You know, you just get like 10 of those little sliders. 10? Yeah, not 10. I mean, I could probably eat 10, actually, but you get you a lot of them. burgers. I think White Castle sliders. I wish they were more in the South. Mm. Sorry for all of our listeners that are based in the South. White Castles are few and far between. There's that other one, though, called Crystals. Is it Crystals? Here, it's Hardee's. Well, Hardee's, well, yeah, they oh, don't have no. the mini ones. You know, you got, I think it's called Crystals. Yeah, you're right. There's you're not right. many of those either, though. They're, like, I, don't even, I don't even know if there's one. 
I haven't seen one in a long time, actually. I was confused because Hardee's is Carl Jr.'s in other places. Uh, okay. The K's threw me off. Yeah. But yeah, Crystal, I feel like I've seen one on my drive I've seen somewhere. Them. They're just like, they're also few and far between. <laughs> yeah. Probably like a two hour road trip to the nearest one. Yeah. Okay. Back on topic. <laughs> so I give all this background on Russell and kind of what he did and the Soul Burger, which, you know, is not really that important in this story, but I, I give all that info just to show that Russell played a really big role in bringing this once, you know, rough and struggling business back into modern day as a successful business that's still operating. All the while, he managed to keep the bar's original name, honoring Ernestine and Hazel that got it all started as a bar. On that note, I wanted to mention that Hazel passed away in 1995 and Ernestine passed away in 1998. And I did read that Ernestine and Russell actually became really good friends, which I thought that was cool to hear that. That's so sweet. It could have been bitter that she's like, oh, we had to close it and sell to this guy. So it was kind of cool to see that they became good friends, even though they're generationally. They had some overlap, but not, you know, they were a pretty big gap in their generational age or yes. in their age. That's a weird way to say generational age. <laughs> They were from two different generations. They were from two different generations. Yes. Okay, now I'm going to fast forward to September 8th, 2013. So pretty modern. So after the bar shut down at 3 a.m. this night and the last of the staff left for the night, Russell George went to his office upstairs to retire for the night, probably doing you know bookkeeping, what have you. Just a typical night, he'd go up to his office in the night and close things out. When a staff member opened his office door the next morning, he found Russell there with a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. Oh, man. Those close to him said he had been quietly battling cancer, depression, among other things. He passed away at the age of 62 and was said to be the 13th person to die inside Ernestine and Hazel's. And the details are vague on who the other 12 people were who died there. Uh, but I did find a lot of things saying that there were 12 people and then 13 counting him that died in the bar. That's so sad. If you ever, ever need help always reach out for it there's always somebody who will help you just a little side note yep thanks um as far as the other people who died though like while the details are vague it's believed that these may have been sex workers that worked in the brothel there but for them you know we probably wouldn't know ever if people did die or not because a lot of them they just I mean, back in that time period when it's operating too and being in a, an illegal I think it was considered a legal business. I don't know, actually. I'm pretty sure it's been illegal for a long time. Yeah, and this would have been the 1900s. So. Yeah. Yeah, so it's hard to say they, if they died or if it's just folklore, but they probably wouldn't know. A lot of the times it wasn't kept on record because people just really didn't care that much about them. They felt like they were kind of throwaway individuals, which is absolutely horrible. Yeah. Well, that's the lore that there were 12 other people who did die in that bar. On that note, let's discuss some of the haunted stories at the bar. There were a number of interviews done with a lady named Karen Brownlee, who is a bartender and manager at Ernestine and Hazel's. And seeing that she spends a lot of time there, she has both firsthand accounts of haunted happenings, as well as she you know, talks with all the staff there, being the manager. Hmm. She talks with all the staff there. She talks with a lot of customers. So she gets to hear other people's stories and like what they've experienced there. So I found multiple interviews with her describing all the stuff she's personally seen as well as what people have told her they've experienced there so a lot of the stuff i'll be talking about in the haunted aspects are stuff that she has said interesting okay let's get into her stories first and foremost there have been a lot of strange occurrences with the bar's old school jukebox which is located downstairs for example one time karen and her coworker were talking about james brown on the day that he died and all of a sudden the jukebox randomly turned on and started playing the song i feel good oh and things apparently happen like this all the time with the jukebox. 
It'll sometimes just turn on and play songs at random or even play a song that isn't on the playlist. That's crazy. Other times it will turn on and play a song that is directly related to this conversation going on nearby, just like the James Brown song. Wow. So a haunted jukebox. It's kind of cool though. I don't know if it's like the jukebox is haunted or if there's a ghost in there that just likes to mess with the jukebox and mess with people. It's Mm. probably one or the other. I just don't know which. So I found another story saying one time, and this is related to the jukebox, but one time there was a paranormal investigator sitting at the bar and talking about exorcism with uh, Russell George that owned it previously. And all of a sudden, the song by the Rolling Stones, Sympathy for the Devil, started playing on its own. That's awesome. That'd be pretty scary, I think. (laughs) That's so awesome. I'd probably just get up and leave. Like, oh, uh, I'll just finish this beer outside. (laughs) So it's an eavesdropping jukebox ghost. I don't know if it's like a possessed jukebox or if it's a ghost that just messes with the jukebox. It's but regardless, they enjoy listening to other people's conversations. They do, and messing with them. And messing with them, and yeah. commenting in certain aspects. That's true. <laughs> they want to be the soundtrack to everybody's lives. I wonder if people listening to this are familiar with jukeboxes, because I remember, I mean, there's a, we're a little bit older. I mean, we didn't grow up with jukeboxes, but I know what they are. But some people never grew up with CDs even. Cassette tapes are actually the new thing Are they on popular TikTok. now? Okay. People are, or younger people are finding them and being like, how does this work? How does it go in the thing? So and then they'll leave it in the like cassette case and try and put it into the the tape deck with the yeah. case still on it instead of taking it out and like winding it and so stuff. So people are trying to like go online and buy old cassettes just to play them? I don't know. Interesting. I don't... Well, you heard it here first, folks. Invest in jukeboxes. They'll probably be really popular <laughs> soon. <laughs> If you can find one, shipping's outrageous, I'm sure. Oh my gosh, yes. One of the scariest occurrences for Karen was when she was standing at the jukebox and it felt like somebody touched her. Yeah. So not related to music or anything. She just stand there and something felt like it touched her. And she claims this is the only occurrence she's experienced and she's experienced multiple occurrences there. Hmm. But she said this is the only one that truly scared her. The rest she considered just kind of weird. Hmm. I think they'd all scare me, but I guess she's a tough lady. <laughs> sounds like it. So aside from the jukebox, most of the haunted activity at the bar seems to be upstairs. The jukebox is downstairs. And the upstairs is where the formal brothel was located. And here are some of the haunted things that happened upstairs. Earlier, I mentioned that Russell George lived upstairs while the bar was being renovated. During this time, he would sometimes hear wild parties out in the hallways at night, only to open his door and find no one there. Maybe Ray Charles, you know, <laughs> wandering through the halls with his ladies or whatever. Maybe. I also mentioned earlier... That when the building was a church, there was a young girl who fell down the stairs and died. Multiple guests have claimed to see the ghost of this little girl standing at the top of the stairs. The ghost will then disappear, and people will hear the sound of someone falling down the stairs. Then the guest will run over and look, and no one's at the bottom. So it's like she's on a you know replay, just living it over. She's falling down the stairs. A residual haunting yeah. where they just keep doing Oh, yeah, that's what they're called, isn't it? Yeah, but that would be one of the weird ones to That would be creepy. Yeah. Another story from Karen. So she claims to have been at the bar by herself one night and heard a piano playing upstairs along with the sound of people walking and talking. She also said if you take a picture upstairs, you almost certainly get an orb in it. Sometimes when you take pictures upstairs, you'll even see faces in the walls. Don't like that. That would be the worst to see a face in the wall. The orb would be like, I could write that off. Be like, oh, there's some weird lighting going on. A car drove by outside. Seeing a face in the wall, it's hard hard to write that one off. All right, now i got a bunch more stories from Karen. I'm just going to keep going with her stories. (laughs) So one time Karen was upstairs with a group of paranormal investigators who, as you can imagine, frequent the bar for that reason, not for the beer. They probably do both. 
I would do both. Yes. But she was upstairs with a group of paranormal investigators who were trying to talk with the ghost. One of the investigators said, Karen's here, thinking that the ghost might respond to Karen, who works at the bar every day. And they were right, because as soon as they said that, their flashlight started to turn off and on. Huh. So I guess the ghost uh, liked to mess with Karen. They like her or they like to mess with her? Don't know which one. Hmm. She feels pretty safe there, so I think that's good. must not be that bad. Karen said they used to have a guy who worked at the bar for 15 years. One day, he went upstairs, and then he came running back down through the bar and right out the front door. <laughs> I'm not. Uh, she's not sure what he experienced, but it terrified him to the point that he won't go upstairs to this day. Wow. It must have been pretty scary. And maybe it was a little girl up on the stairs, but I mean, that would probably scare me enough to not want to go up there again. But yeah. Hard to say. Agreed. She also said they had another guy who worked at the bar for 13 years as a cleanup person at the end of the night. That'd be the worst job that in a haunted bar. That would be the bar. worst job. Oh my gosh. <laughs> not, if you're there by yourself. The, doing the cleanup wouldn't be very fun, but being the last person at night at probably 3 or 4 a.m. doing it, that'd be Oh awful. my gosh. No. Yeah. So this guy apparently told other staff members that he heard voices upstairs in certain rooms and the voices would say, here he is again. Oh my gosh. It's <laughs> kind of funny. I feel like <laughs> they could so say so funny. many more like mean or demonic sounding things. We're like, oh, it's this guy. Taking up and our it, space again. Yeah. So everyone oh. apparently that worked with him there, everyone thought he was crazy, which I can imagine if someone's like, hey, I'm hearing voices upstairs and this is what they said. Yeah. Everyone thought he was crazy though, but now Karen has no doubt in her mind this guy was actually hearing these voices. In fact, she claims every now and then she hears voices in the bar, but she can't quite make out what they're saying. Maybe he just had really good hearing. Maybe. Or a hearing aid. Maybe maybe Karen needs a hearing aid. <laughs> there was another night where customers were sitting at the bar making fun of Ghost and talking bad about Ernestine and Hazel. Kind of reminds me of my Robert the Doll story. People badmouth him. Then something happens. Mm-hmm. So they were talking bad about Ernestine and Hazel. And all of a sudden, the lights in the bar started getting brighter, dimmer, brighter, dimmer, then they just got excessively brighter, like sunlight almost. Wow. Needless to say, these customers got terrified and just left. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so the bar staff has also had some weird things happen with their money. Hmm. Don't like that. All Don't. about my money. <laughs> <laughs> so one time they had a money bag go missing. And they looked everywhere and couldn't find it. Then one day, five years later, <laughs> Karen and her coworker were playing pool and the cue ball fell off the table and went under the couch. They picked up the couch and searched the ball and found a bag of money with cobwebs all over it. And from what they believe, it was that bag of money that went missing. I would be so upset. That'd be crazy. At least it was the manager who it went missing with instead of like some other some kind employee. of closer. Yeah. And yeah. then you would just be accused of having lost that I'm or sure. stolen all that money. Yeah. I wouldn't even know what to think. After five years, you pretty much write it off. It's pretty much free game at that point. Oh, absolutely. It's definitely what more like it, vacation I'm surprised money. the customer didn't just like... Over five years, even if it isn't under a couch, I think someone would just I've stumble it. across it, you know, drop their keys or a coin or phone. Yeah. Like, oh, look, bag of money. <laughs> Maybe the cleaning guy wasn't doing his job under the couch. Mm, that's because he ran away scared. Fair. And he's hearing voices. <laughs> he can focus probably. He probably didn't clean very well when you're hearing voices every day. That's for sure. Okay. Now I have a little more of a uh, bittersweet story from Karen. So in 2007, while Karen was working at the bar, she found out that her 24-year-old son was shot and killed. Aww. One day after she came back to work, 
She was sitting at the bar by herself, crying, and said, Ernestine, please give me a sign that my kid's all right. Out of nowhere, a baby bird came walking over to her from one of the booths inside the bar. She looked down at it, and the little bird walked over to an iron gate where the door was open and flew off. Karen took this as a sign that her kid was okay. A sign from Ernestine, that is. Oh, I have goosebumps. That's so sweet. <laughs> and shortly after the bird flew off, a lady came in that Karen had never seen before. She walked in and said, hey lady, are you okay? Karen then started talking to her about everything. The lady eventually left the bar and came back an hour later and gave Karen a sterling silver necklace with a bird on it. She then gave Karen a big hug and left. Karen never saw the lady again and she never got her name. Aww. So Karen thinks Ernestine may have been just watching over her that day. Maybe the lady that came in was a ghost of Ernestine. That's so sweet. Yeah, who knows, but... In fact, when she first started working at the bar, she used to get freaked out when she was there and working alone and would just start talking to Ernestine to feel less scared. So, you know, maybe Ernestine just kind of paid it back that day, you know, all the chit-chat she gave her. That's <laughs> She's true. a nice lady. It would be nice to think that if you were working in a super haunted place that the haunting was at least friendly and relatable. Yeah, I don't have... I didn't take notes on this, but I saw when I was reading up all the stuff that Karen is, in her opinion... She's never felt like unsafe there around any other ghosts other than that one time she felt like she was touched. But she says she's never felt unsafe and she believes, there's not like evidence for it, but her feelings and all the time she spends there, she believes that all the ghosts there are women, which hmm. you know, it could make sense being a, a brothel where maybe some of those women were killed and or Ernestine and Hazel, which they didn't die in the bar, but uh, you know they spent a lot of their lives working there. So that's her feeling is that many of the ghosts there are other women and they're watching out. Oh, sounds like good vibes. I want yeah, to go check it be. out. I would like to check it out. Well, that about wraps up all the haunted stuff and the history at Ernestine and Hazel's. Before I finish up my story, I want to tell you about what's been happening at the bar in more recent years. So as I noted at the top of my story, Ernestine and Hazel's is still open and operating as a bar to this date. However, the bar did transfer owners again in 2013 following the death of Russell George. And that's what I alluded to earlier that one of those like silent owners that Bud Cheatham or Cheatham, that dude. Yeah. It was his daughter, I believe, that basically inherited the bar because hmm. I think uh, Russell passed away. Then I think the Bud guy passed away. So she inherited the bar at that time. And I think Ernest, from what I read too, I think it may have been sold again in 2020. It was a little bit vague on that because it was pretty recent too. Hmm. Um, but it sounded like Ernestine Hazel's is now currently owned and operated by a group of friends that are updating the bar yet again. And they're still keeping the old kind of name of Ernestine Hazel's and they're kind of keeping that old, like the old school dive bar feel to it. They're not going to turn it into like a, you know, super hit new concept. They're trying to keep like the roots of the bar intact. Oh, that sounds so cool. So during their renovations, um, these new owners were doing construction on the building and in 2019 and found bones in the walls. I was worried you were going to say that. Yeah, so we're not done yet, but we're almost done. Oh, man. Well, this was a bit of a false alarm. Um, and this was reported on multiple news outlets in Memphis. So it's not like one of those things where one person said it and it's only on the ghost websites type of thing. This was actually reported on Memphis news outlets and there are pictures of the bones. Hmm. So they did find bones in the walls and this freaked out all the construction workers, but the bones were taken and studied and it turns out they were actually cow bones. Interesting. Yeah. Which is kind of odd, but yeah, it's a relief. They're not human bones, but like, why are there cow bones in the wall? So that's a little bit odd. <laughs> From those yummy burgers. Oh, uh, maybe. I guess they're fresh. <laughs> yeah. Burgers are fresh, huh? Yeah. So yeah, that was a bit of a 
bit of a nothing burger on that. I just wanted to mention it because it's like could have led to a good haunted story, but I was like, oh, it's just the cow bones. At least they were honest. Yeah, that's true. They could have. I'm sure in 20 or 30 years, someone will change it over to human bones and be like, these were human bones. Could be. Yeah. I bet there are ghost tours that walk by that talk about the human bones they found in I'm the sure wall. I'm sure they do. It could be another one of those times where you're like, <clears throat> correction, those are cow bones. You can <laughs> tell by the size of the femur. Do the cows have a femur? I don't even know. I, I bet they do. The skull bone was there. I definitely know it's a cow. <laughs> That's, yeah. So to close things out, I wanted to provide a few quotes from Ernestine Hazel's website. This is like their official website. And I think they like best describe the place as it is today and kind of its legacy. So I just thought I'm going to quote some stuff from their website directly. So it kind of gives people a good feel of the place. All right, here it goes. Ernestine Hazel's welcomes you to enjoy the greatest jukebox in the country. Taste our nationally recognized soul burger. There it is. And check out our ghost tours to see if the sisters are still around. Since our opening in 1992, we have been featured in nine movies written about in magazines like Playboy and Esquire, visited by many celebrities, and deemed one of the most haunted places in America. Ernestine and Hazel's is more than just a cool dive bar. It represents the history of Memphis. It represents the soul, jazz, and blues that echoed into the streets and the legends like B.B. King, Tina Turner, and Aretha Franklin that went there for solace. But most of all, Ernestine and Hazel's represents what Memphis is all about. Great music, great food, and great times. Oh, that's so sweet. I thought it was a pretty good uh, way to end it. Just Absolutely. Kind of, and I really want to go there now to check it out. I do too. Out. It really paints them in a, like a good light. Yeah. So I hope they're, uh, hope they're good. <laughs> yes. I wish I would have went there because I've been in Memphis a couple of times and I've been on like Beale Street, which is like the, uh, it's like the famous street in Memphis that's you can like walk on the street and drink it has a lot of the old school like like uh, jazz places and all that it's, it's just like their famous streets like their broadway or something maybe not like that but it's kind of like their broadway i guess that's so cool it's called beale street but this one's not on beale street which is probably why i didn't see it but it is downtown mm. so well i've never been so we'll have to go i would like to make a trip and check it out maybe uh do if they do any ghost tours upstairs we should start just travel website or travel blog to go along with this podcast so. hauntedbars.com I hope that's not taken. I'm going to look it up now. <laughs> Don't take sure. it. <laughs> that one's probably gone. Yeah. Trademark. TM, TM, TM. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that pretty much wraps up my story, though. So I can pass the mic on over to you now. Okie dokie. We have two mics here, by the way. I'm just kidding. We do. We don't have to share one. Thank goodness. This week, I am going to be taking you to a very small town that's close to Nashville called Adams, Tennessee. And I'm sure if anybody is listening that's familiar with Adams or the area knows that I am going to be talking about the Bell Witch. Adams, Tennessee, that's the home of country music, right? No, it's actually one of the smallest towns in Tennessee with a population of only 624 people. I was just joking since you uh, (laughs) didn't answer my Memphis one. I'm sorry. I didn't know. I've never been, so I don't know. I haven't either. And I don't know music history very well. Touche. (laughs) <laughs> I only know haunted history and ghost words like residual haunting. It's my specialty. So we are going to be starting in Adams, Tennessee. It's 45 minutes away from Nashville. And almost all of the 624 inhabitants of this town have had an experience with what is said to be the witch. They've experienced anything from getting scratched to seeing all black animals with indistinguishable or unusual features around town. And they're definitely considered some of the more common witch encounters, which is pretty scary 
to think that you might just randomly get scratched around town. Wouldn't like that. Absolutely not. This is also one of the most documented paranormal events with over 20 books that have been published about the hauntings. The Bell Witch has also inspired roughly seven movies, two documentaries, I'm sure there are more, and five horror movies, including The Blair Witch Project, which is one of my favorites. Oh, man. I was going to make a joke and be like, is it The Bell Witch Project? But it actually was The Blair Witch Project. (laughs) I didn't realize it was uh, inspired by that. Yeah. You'll have to uh, listen for some commonalities between the two while I'm going through the story. Why didn't they just call it the Bell Witch Project? It would have sounded just as good. Maybe it's trademarked. Maybe it's trademarked. Maybe they wanted their own name. Mm, could be. Because Blair Witch is pretty legendary. That way they can make their own like, spin on things. That's true. Of course, with this being such a well-documented and ongoing experience for the town, many paranormal investigators have stopped by. And some of the more notable ones being Ghost Adventures, Zach Bagans, The Expedition X Team, Boogeyman, Monsters Among Us, which I watched for this, and it was actually very interesting, and Haunted Live, which is from the Travel Channel. The original book, An Authenticated History of the Famous Bell Witch, was published a full 77 years after the initial haunting began. Which brings to question just how much of the book is entirely fact-based, considering most of the original subjects of the haunting had passed on. To get the full perspective on this story, let's go back to the beginning. It began with John Bell, who in the early 1800s moved his family from North Carolina to the Red River bottomland in Tennessee and helped establish a township which later became Adams, Tennessee. He purchased a house and some land to begin farming on, and he later acquired more land, increasing his holdings to about 328 acres. The Bells were very successful and happy in their new home in Adams. Unfortunately, their lives were about to be turned upside down. One day in 1817, John Bell was inspecting his cornfield when he encountered a strange-looking animal sitting in the middle of a corn row. Shocked by the appearance of this animal, which had the body of a dog and the head of a rabbit, Bell shot at it several times. The animal vanished. It's unclear if the animal dissipated into like smoke type vanished or ran into the cornfields. And when he investigated the area where the animal had been, there were no paw prints around and the grass did not look like it had been trodden down by anything like physically there. This was the first documented manifestation of what is deemed the entity by the bells. Some other unusual events on the farm were documented when John's son, Drew Bell, approached an unknown bird perched on a fence that flew off, which was of an extraordinary size. One of his daughters, Betsy, observed a girl in a green dress swinging from the limb of an oak tree. Betsy tried to speak with the girl, but she vanished before her eyes. Dean, a person enslaved by the Bell family, reported being followed by a large black dog on evenings that he visited his wife. The dog was said to take multiple forms. Some nights, it would have two heads, and other nights, it didn't have a head at all. (laughs) Dean's wife made him a witch ball to protect him from the creature, and he was never without it. So he was never harmed that I could find in any of the stories. What's a witch ball? I didn't look into the witch ball very much, unfortunately. I should have. And this brings to you our advertiser, (laughs) witchballs.com. Buy your witch balls. $3.99. All the protection for all the discounts. Even with these strange sightings, the bells carried on as normal until the activity of the entity moved into their home. 
One evening, the family began hearing beating sounds on the outside walls of their log home. The mysterious beating sounds continued with increased frequency and force each night. John Bell and his sons would run outside to try and catch the culprit, but always returned empty-handed. In the weeks that followed, the Bell children began waking up frightened, complaining that rats were gnawing at their bedposts. That'd be pretty rough. So, so creepy. Is this uh, is one of the movies that was based on this, the one called American Haunting? I remember watching, it had some famous people in it, and it took place in this time period. I thought it was in a different place in the country, though. They had a daughter who was either being, like, cursed by a witch, or she was possessed, or they thought she was a witch. I don't remember what it was, but it sounds similar to me, because I remember some of the uh, occurrences that they sound really similar. I'm not sure. There were just so many that there wasn't, like, a specified list of them all. Yeah. Uh, The witch where the girl goes into the woods and... Starts like floating up into the air. The movie The Witch? Yeah. Yeah. That one I think was loosely based on this story. That was was pretty good. That one was good. There's a lot of good movies related to the story. Mm. I'm not sure on that one. Just wondering. There's a lot more creepy stuff that goes on. So I bet we'll find some other connections to other movies. Well, carry on. So just how many people were there in this family? Because it sounds like John has a bunch of kids. The family consisted of John and his wife, Lucy Bell, and their children, Jesse, John Jr., Drury, Drew, Drury, they called him Drew, Benjamin, Esther, Zadok, Z-A-D-O-K, Elizabeth, who is called Betsy, Richard, and Joel Egbert. Joel Egbert? Joel Egbert. That's his first and last name? That is his first and middle name. Joel Egbert. Yeah, I guess he went... Like how some people go, Mary Catherine, yeah. <laughs> and they say the whole thing every time. Joel Egbert. Does it work with every name as well? No, no, it doesn't. And Jay Egg. <laughs> Is Jay Egg? Jay Egg. I think they call him Egbert later in this. He sounds like a cartoon character. <laughs> <laughs> but you would think with all of these kids, there would be strength in numbers to keep yourself safe or to at least feel safe in a home at night. Yeah. With all your siblings around, but sounds like they still had a lot of really creepy stuff going on. Well, if we learned anything from Hocus Pocus, which is go after the kids. That's true. The Disney Channel is definitely our experts on witches. Pretty sure that was a documentary. (laughs) So not long after the rats gnawing on the bedposts, the children began complaining of having their covers pulled off of them and their pillows jerked away and tossed to the floor by an invisible entity. Other strange occurrences in the home at this time were the sound of dogs fighting, wings beating against the ceiling, choking and strangling noises from under the beds, and invisible chains being dragged across the floor. It all sounds pretty rough. Horrifying. Not a lot of sleep. Absolutely not. Even with you and your however many siblings. Soon, the entity started pulling hair and scratched the children, with a particular emphasis on Betsy, the youngest daughter who was slapped so hard, welts would appear on her face. Oh, wow. She was also pinched and stuck with pins. They couldn't find the pins, but she said it felt like she was being stuck with pins. Oh, no. She's like the voodoo doll for the witch or something. Exactly. John had vowed to keep these occurrences a secret from his neighbors, probably out of fear that the family would be labeled as mentally unwell, cursed, or even witches themselves. It got so bad that he confided in his closest friend and neighbor, James Johnson, about the happenings. Thankfully, like the good friend he was, James and his wife 
came to stay the night and get a first-hand experience with this entity. Things began peacefully enough, but once they retired for the evening, the Johnsons were subjected to the same terrifying disturbances that the Bells had been experiencing. After their covers were yanked off and James was slapped, he sprang out of bed to yell at the entity. These are said to be his words. In the name of the Lord, who are you and what do you want? The entity did not respond to James, and the rest of the night was peaceful. The next morning, James explained to the Bells that the entity was likely an evil spirit, the kind that the Bible talks about. (laughs) So scary. The entity eventually began to speak over time, and its voice became loud and unmistakable. It sang hymns, quoted scripture, carried on intelligent conversation, and once even quoted word for word two sermons that were preached at the same time on the same day 13 miles apart. Word of the supernatural phenomena soon spread outside the settlement, even to Nashville. People began traveling great distances to hear the voice and observe any haunted occurrences. The entity was asked, who are you and what do you want? And the voice answered feebly, sounding like an old woman, I am a spirit. I was once very happy but have been disturbed. The entity offered multiple explanations as to why it had appeared tying its origin to the disturbance of a Native American burial mound on the property. Possibly, when Drew Bell, along with a friend, were looking for buried treasure, the boys unearthed a Native American burial site and brought the jawbone back to the house. When John saw the boys with the jaw, he disciplined them and told them to return the jaw to its resting place. Drew, frustrated at his father, threw the jawbone to the ground, causing some of the teeth to fly from the jaw and fall through the gaps in the porch. The entity told the family that it was searching for its missing teeth, which could be directly related to this incident. Another time, the entity claimed to be a spirit from everywhere. Heaven, hell, the earth. I am in the air, the houses, any place at any time, and I have been around for millions of years. That's crazy. Isn't that crazy? It's like an ancient god type of thing or something. Essentially. Yeah. Much more than a witch. Yeah. Not necessarily a witch. They called it an entity for quite some time. The entity knew biblical text very well and appeared to enjoy religious arguments. As another form of entertainment, the witch shared gossip about the families in the other households and at times appeared to leave for brief moments to visit homes, perhaps to be a fly on the wall. John Johnson, a son of James Johnson, devised a test for the witch, a question no one outside his family would know asking the entity what his Dutch step-grandmother in North Carolina would say to the slaves if she thought they did something wrong. The entity replied with his grandmother's accent, Hut tut, what has happened now? In another account, an Englishman stopped in for a visit and offered to investigate. On remarking on his family overseas, the entity suddenly began to mimic his English parents. In the morning, the entity woke him with the voices of his parents, worried as they had heard his voice as well. The Englishman quickly left that morning and later wrote to the Bell family that the entity had visited his family in England. He also apologized for his skepticism. There are reports that in 1819, Andrew Jackson visited the Bells to observe or investigate the haunting for himself. As Jackson's entourage, consisting of several men, well-groomed horses, and a large wagon approached the Bells' property, the wagon jolted to a sudden stop. It had become stuck in a muddy creek bed, and the horses were unable to pull it out. At least that's what the men thought. After several minutes of cursing and trying to coax the horses into pulling the wagon, 
Jackson proclaimed, By the eternal, boys, that must be the bell witch. Then, suddenly, a disembodied female voice told Jackson that they could proceed and that she would see them again later that evening. They were then able to proceed up the lane and to the bell home. That evening, Jackson told old war stories while his entourage set up their tents in John and Lucy Bell's yard. One of the men claimed to be a witch tamer. After several uneventful hours, the witch tamer, quote-unquote, pulled out a shiny pistol and proclaimed that its silver bullet would kill any evil spirit that it came into contact with. He went on to say that the reason nothing had happened to them was because whatever had been haunting the bells was scared of him and his silver bullet. Immediately, the man screamed and began jerking his body in different directions, complaining that he was being stuck with pins. A strong, swift kick to the man's posterior region from an invisible foot sent him out the front door. Angry, the entity spoke up and announced that there was yet another fraud in Jackson's party, that she would identify him the following evening. She just kicked him right in the butt out the front door. (laughs) She was not having any of that. Now terrified, Jackson's men begged to leave the bell farm, but Jackson insisted on staying. He wanted to know who the other fraud was. The men eventually went outside to sleep in their tents while begging Jackson to leave. What happened next is not clear, but Jackson and his entourage were spotted in nearby Springfield early the next morning, going back to Nashville. Some allege that Jackson later proclaimed, I would rather fight the British at New Orleans than fight the Bell Witch. At times, the entity would show some kindness, especially towards Lucy, John Bell's wife, the most perfect woman to walk the earth. The entity would give Lucy fresh fruit and sing hymns to her and show John Bell Jr. a measure of respect. I imagine that this fruit would just appear out of thin air, but I couldn't find any more details on where it would come from. What do you think? She like uh, conjured this thing up or something? Was it so nice to her? There's really not much explanation on it, but it just liked her. Hmm. And gave gifts of fruit. Well, that's a good deal for her. Right? The entity was very cruel to John and Betsy, but it seemed to focus her attention entirely on John, tormenting him until he grew sick and frail. In December of 1820, John came down with what would be his final illness. His attending doctor discovered a mysterious vial half filled with a dark colored liquid. Upon the discovery of this vial, the chatty entity proclaimed triumphantly, It's useless for you to try to relieve old Jack. I've got him this time. He will never get up from that bed again. Referring to the vial, she affirmed, I put it there and gave old Jack a big dose out of it last night while he was asleep, which fixed him. John Bell died the next day. It said the contents of the vial were given to the pet cat, and the cat was dead before it could jump down out of its owner's arm. One of the sons threw the vial into the fire, where it's also said to have changed the fire color to blue. John Bell's funeral was a major event, and one of the largest ever held in Robertson County, Tennessee. People attended for miles away, and three preachers, two Methodist and one Baptist, eulogized him. As the crowd of mourners began leaving the graveyard, the entity laughed and sang a song about drinking and a bottle of brandy. Her singing didn't stop until the last mourner had left the graveyard. The entity's presence was almost non-existent after John Bell's demise, as though it had fulfilled its purpose. Interesting. Maybe he was doing some bad things or something that was punishing him. I'll get into that a little bit later. All right. I won't try to ruin it. We're just going through the overarching history of the book. Okay. The entity's antics kicked back up when Betsy Bell became interested in Joshua Gardner. 
a young man who lived nearby. With the blessings of their parents, they decided to marry. Everyone was happy about their engagement. Well, almost everyone. The evil, mysterious entity became furious and repeatedly ordered Betsy not to marry Joshua. Betsy and Joshua could not go to the river, the fields, or the cave to play without the entity nagging them, and the constant pressure was more than Betsy could handle. And on Easter Monday of 1821, she met Joshua at the river and broke off their engagement. April 1821, shortly after Betsy had broken off their engagement, the entity announced it would be leaving, but that it would return in seven years. The entity kept that promise, and in 1828, it returned to Lucy and her sons Richard and Joel. I think that's Egbert. It began its initial haunting activities, but the family decided not to acknowledge or entertain the entity, and the entity bid farewell after three weeks, promising to visit John Bell's direct descendant in 107 years. The year would be 1935, and the closest living direct descendant at the time was a Nashville physician, Dr. Charles Bailey Bell, a neurologist and John Bell's senior's great-grandson. In 1934, Dr. Bell published a book about the Bell Witch, likely to raise awareness of the spirit's impending return. The book contains the first ever account of the alleged conferences between the entity and John Bell. In 1828, the author's father, Dr. Joel Thomas Bell, had allegedly taken notes during the conferences and upon his death, passed them down to Dr. Bailey Bell. Dr. Bell died in 1945 and is buried at Bellwood Cemetery in Adams, Tennessee. So did the Bell Witch return in 1935 as promised? Some say she did not return, or that if she did, they were not aware of it, but many say she never left the place to begin with. Some interesting information. John Bell, whenever you were wondering if he actually deserved all of this entity's attention, he was excommunicated from the Red River Baptist Church. Not for anything to do with the entity or the witch, but for price gouging when selling property. Interesting. He may have not been the most innocent person he has made out to be. Also, Rumier. Rumier. <laughs> Rumier. Rumier has it. Also, rumors circulated that he may have had a relationship with Kate Batts, but those are only rumors. Is this just uh, another lady in the town or something? You'll find out oh, about okay. her significance Sorry, a little later. Jump ahead on things. <laughs> it's okay. I would have questions too, but I'll get to that right now. I want to hear all the rumors? <laughs> um, so Mary Catherine or Kate Batts, the wife of Frederick Batts, was believed by many to have been the culprit behind the disturbances now known as the Bell Witch. She was not a poor woman, but was often mocked by other town folk in the area for her improper usage of words along with her sometimes strange ways. It led many to think that she was practicing black magic or other forms of the occult. She may have simply been using native plants to heal, as her grandmother was said to have been part Cherokee and had that knowledge. And you know, anything unexplained during those times was just witchcraft. Gotta be a witch. Got, oh, she's healing people. Witch. In the early years of the century, Benjamin Batts, the brother of Frederick Batts, had a dispute with John Bell over the sale of property. Once again, property is popping up. The facts of the dispute were later mixed up and became the source of a rumor to the effect that John Bell and Kate Batts had the quarrel, not Benjamin Batts. 
and that the Bell Witch was created by Kate Batts to get revenge on John. While there are plenty of stories connecting the Bell Witch to Kate Batts and some sort of disagreement that existed between her and John Bell, of course, recent evidence suggests that she had nothing to do with it. In fact, contrary to reports of her claiming that she would get even with John on her deathbed, Kate Batts actually outlived John Bell by 27 years. It's quite a bit. Right? In 1856, the New England farmer of Boston and the Green Mountain Freeman of Vermont, both newspapers, ran a story discussing the Bell Witch legend. Both papers claimed the origin of the story to be the Saturday Evening Post article. The unidentified author described the apparition as the Tennessee ghost, or Bell ghost, and stated that the event occurred 30 years or more from the time that the article was written. There are three characters in the account, Mr. Bell, his daughter Betsy, and Joshua Gardner. The author stated that the voice, which spoke freely about the house from all directions, would not manifest itself until the lights were extinguished at night. The phenomenon attracted wide interest, and the author claimed to have become well acquainted with Mr. Gardner, whom the details of this article were from. And if this is true, I was only able to find one solid source about this article, but the original article that both of these papers reference had accused Betsy of being able to do ventriloquism. And that's a good skill. It would have been a great skill and a good explanation for the whole entity bellwitch phenomenon, but Betsy threatened to sue the paper. So I believe once she threatened to sue the paper, that's when all the evidence of this article completely disappeared because it was untraceable after these references. So let's chat a little on the book. Its full title is An Authenticated History of the Famous Bell Witch. The Wonder of the 19th Century and Unexplained Phenomenon of the Christian Era. The mysterious talking goblin that terrorized the west end of Robertson County, Tennessee, tormenting John Bell to his death. The story of Betsy Bell, her lover, and the haunting Sphinx. Just to make sure I heard you right, that is the title? That is the full title. That is a long title. The official full title. You know it's real though because it says authenticated history. Very true. It's always a sign that... It's a true story when you start the title out as true story. <laughs> Just like all the movies that reference this true stories. This actually happened. Actual found footage. So Martin Ingram's book, The Authenticated History of the Famous Bell Witch. I won't say the rest of the title again. I forgot it. Can you say it again? <laughs> <laughs> you want me to read the whole thing no. again? You can just listen to this recording later. Martin Ingram is the author, and his book is entirely based upon the handwritten diary of Richard Bell one of the sons. Richard was born in 1811, so he was about six years old when the hauntings began. According to Ingram, Richard waited until 1846, more than 30 years, before he actually wrote down the events in this diary. He recorded his 30-year-old memories of being a six-year-old child while this was occurring. Do you remember much when you were six years old? No. Mm, Me neither. I have like a few things. Like, going to the beach or something that I can remember. Ingram goes on to say that in 1857, Richard gave the diary to his son, Alan Bell, who subsequently, and quite inexplicably, gave it to Ingram with instructions to keep it private until after the deaths of the immediate family. Well, the immediate family all died out around 1890, after Ingram had began writing his book. Conveniently, every person with the first-hand knowledge of the Bell Witch hauntings 
were already dead when Ingram started his book. In fact, every person with secondhand knowledge also was dead. Convenient, right? All of Very your direct sources. Yeah. Nobody this might be chewing the weeds, but this sounds eerily similar to... We can delete this out. It sounds eerily similar to the Book of Mormon, though. <laughs> <laughs> Where the uh, guy found the tablet. It's like, it just sounds very similar. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I'll include that. Just yeah, you can not. get rid of it. It might be uh, offensive. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to make anybody... But it is it's very similar. Yeah. Ingram traveled to Chicago in October 1893 in an attempt to publish his manuscript. At the end of March 1893, it was announced that his publisher, W.P. Titus of Clarksville, would print the work. The publisher reported a delay in printing after the witch visited one night in early May. Titus stated that the witch demonstrated with maniacal singing, laughing, prayers, moaning, clapping, and rattling of the roof. So this whole phenomena caused the printers to evacuate. And it was probably the employees that did not want to come back after that that continued the delay. I don't know. The publisher did this? The printer did this, he said? At yeah. the publisher's place, oh, this yeah. happened. Seems like a good way for the publisher to really hype up the story to me. Hmm. I guess no publicity is bad publicity. It seems like extra good publicity for a haunted story that we took the story, tried to publish it, and all this stuff happened. We got now, haunted. luckily... We're ready to publish it hmm. for $9.99. You can purchase it today. <laughs> it actually took an additional year before the book was completely imprinted. That's a long time. Right? Yeah. Maybe there was a legitimate delay because Could of be. this. That, that seems a little too long to delay their money making if that was the plan. Exactly. Like you can only hype up a book for so long. Yeah. Well, maybe back then there weren't as many authors. I have no idea. In the introduction to the book... Ingram published a letter dated July 1st, 1891 from former Tennessee State Representative James Allen Bell, a son of Richard Williams Bell, and a grandson of John Bell Sr., explained that his father had met with his brother John Bell Jr. before his death, and they agreed no material he had collected should be released until the last immediate family member of John Bell Sr. had died. And the last immediate member of the family, the youngest child, Joel Egbert, died in 1890 at the age of 76. Now, nearly 75 years having passed, the old members of the family who suffered the torments having all passed away, and the witch story still continues to be discussed as widely as the family name is known. Under misconception of the facts, I have concluded that injustice to the memory of an honored ancestry and to the public also whose minds have been abused in regard to the matter, it would be well to give the whole story to the world. J.A. Bell, 1891. Martin Ingram never said anything about what became of this diary. There is no record of anyone else having seen it, and logically, Ingram should have promoted the diary's existence to publicize his book. Why wouldn't he? Also, why would Richard Bell wait 30 years to write down such an incredible story? Why would Alan Bell give away his family's story? much less a unique heirloom to Ingram. Ingram's book also may have falsified at least one other source. His book claims that in 1849, the Saturday Evening Post ran a story about the Bell Witch, blaming the crazy daughter Elizabeth, or Betsy, for everything, and then retracted the story shortly thereafter, once she threatened to sue. People have looked for such an article, and none was ever found. 
So I don't know if when she threatened to sue, they just destroyed all evidence of that ever existing, or if it just never existed in the first place. Historians have found only one printed reference to the Bell Witch that predates the publication of Ingram's book, and it's a brief one-paragraph blurb. <laughs> and it's a brief one-paragraph blurb in the 1886 first edition of Godspeed's History of Tennessee and its chapter on Robertson County, which reads as follows. A remarkable occurrence, which attracted widespread interest, was connected with the family of John Bell, who settled near what is now Adams Station about 1804. So great was the excitement that people came from hundreds of miles around to witness the manifestation of what was popularly known as the Bell Witch. This witch was supposed to be some spiritual being having the voice and attributes of a woman. It was invisible to the eye, yet it would hold conversation and even shake hands with certain individuals. The feats performed were wonderful and seemingly designed to annoy the family. It would take sugar from the bowls, spill the milk, take quilts from the beds, slap and pinch the children, and then laugh at the discomfort of its victims. At first, it was supposed to be a good spirit, but its subsequent acts, together with the curses with which it supplemented its remarks, proved the contrary. Seems like quite a nuisance. Right? They never had peace in their home. Well, Unless you're the uh, mom. Yeah, that's true. She's waking up to bowls of fresh fruit in the middle of Tennessee, and she's like, how'd they bring all this fruit here in this day and age? <laughs> that would be nice, though. She's like, I've never seen a papaya. <laughs> I don't know how I knew it was called a papaya. <laughs> I imagine little, like, blackberries from the brambles or whatever. Yeah, like something uh, like you could gather locally. Yeah. I was thinking, like, tropical stuff. That would be logistically hard to get there in that time period. That would be pretty amazing. That would be. There are two more significant events that are missing from other timelines outside of the book. The witch's murder of John Bell and Andrew Jackson's involvement. No newspapers, court records, or recorded minutes from churches described either event. The story of John Bell's murder at the hands of the Bell Witch was never described in any published account nor placed into a pop culture version of events by the frightened family's reports. It seems almost incredible. Unless Ingram made it up. Sounds like it might have been made up to me. He definitely made up a couple of things. Yeah. Reports say Ingram almost certainly made up the entire Andrew Jackson incident. Andrew Jackson's whereabouts between 1814 and 1820 are well documented, and there is no known record of his having visited Robertson County during those years. In all of his own writings and in all of his many biographies, there is not a single mention to his alleged Bell Witch adventure. The 1824 presidential election was notably malicious, and it seems hard to believe that his opponent would have overlooked the opportunity to drag him through the mud for having lost a fight to a witch. All known documentation shows Jackson elsewhere during the period in question, and all published material about his encounter with the Bell Witch relies on Martin Ingram's book as the sole source. Now, it brings us to the Bell Witch Cave, which is a well-known piece of property in the area. Though it played a relatively minor role in the original Bell Witch legend of the early 19th century, the cave on John Bell's property has since become a focal point for visitors hoping to experience a bit of the haunting themselves. Originally a storage place for food, visitors now can see a stone coffin box from the Native Americans who lived there long before the Bells. Added to the National Historical Registry in 2008, the cave is the only original feature from the legend that can still be seen today, largely unchanged from the way the Bell family would have seen it in 1817. 
Though numerous eerie events have been reported by visitors to the cave, including the renowned difficulty in taking photographs around the site in even the pre-digital age, nothing on the scale of the original haunting centered around the bell house, which is long since torn down, has been reported since the early 1800s. Mostly people will capture dark figures on camera or smoky clouds that are not able to have been seen by the naked eye. Dr. Charles Bailey Bell, John Bell's senior's grandson, wrote a book in 1934 about the upcoming witch return that we referenced a little bit earlier. Also, a cloud of suspicion that followed his grandfather when he moved to Adams from North Carolina. It discusses his being kicked out of the church for how he came about all of his financial successes. Skipping a little bit more forward in time, one of the series that I watched to get a lot of information from, it's called Cursed, The Bell Witch. I streamed it on Hulu. You can also find it on YouTube. It says there is a Bell Witch curse that is on all of the firstborn men of the Bell family. All the men have died in horrible ways, from suicide to being squashed by logs or having a heart attack in the desert without any way to receive help. Current or living descendants do describe odd happenings that sound more like poltergeist activity than anything, in my personal non-expert opinion. When Bob Bell, a direct descendant of the Bell family, was seven years old, he remembers his grandmother calling his father in a panic because she heard a loud crash in her home that woke her up from a nap. When Bob and his father arrived, they investigated his grandmother's home and found all the cabinet doors in her home open and that her fine china had fallen out of the china cabinet and was all over the floor, but none of the dishes had broken. They were all oddly stacked on top of one another on the floor. After recounting his story, Bob Bell proceeds to pull out his family Bible that is dated back to 1820, the year John Bell died. The Bible is obviously very old and one of the only existing heirlooms from the original Bell family members. The men making the documentary, John Kellick and Chad Higginbottom, borrow the Bible from Bob, and that evening, strange sounds and disturbances begin and continue the entire time that the Bible is in their possession. John and Chad also venture out to John Bell's gravesite. The area where the graves sat was oddly dead with most of the trees missing foliage. While they are visiting the graves, loud crashes can be heard all around, and they begin to communicate with the spirits during a Q&A session with a pendant. While conducting the Q&A, their car alarm begins to go off. And I don't want to give away too much from this series because it was very interesting. And I do highly suggest watching it if you would like to see some of their crazy experiences and evidence that they gathered during their investigation. The Mystery of the Bellwitch Haunting on YouTube by The Boogeyman also interviewed Bob Bell, who mentions a letter written by two young boys in 1820 who were going to see the angel at the bell house. The first night, nothing happened, and the second night, the boys relayed, it's not an angel, it's the devil. Bob recounts doors slamming in his house and footsteps when no one else was home. He said it sounded like an intruder, and he cleared his home thoroughly and couldn't find anyone inside. Other people all over the county report feeling watched or uneasy in the cave system. Women in white are reported to have shown up in pictures near the cave. Lights have gone out on explorers in the cave system, all simultaneously, leaving the teams in complete darkness. There is a Bell Cafe in Adams, where activity has happened. One specific occurrence 
is the stake where filled order tickets are stuck has flown across the room and the waitresses while telling the story said they very nonchalantly tell the spirit that they don't have time and the spirit will calm down and leave them alone and then come back later you're like i got five tables <laughs> i'm I real busy time for this right now <laughs> it's the lunch rush with the time that I had and the streaming limits on what channels I could watch, these were the ones that I picked out, and there are so many more for all of your Bell Witch questions and inquiries, so I highly recommend checking some of them out. Also, if you haven't seen The Blair Witch, I highly recommend checking that one out too. I want to watch it again now knowing its inspiration and see if I can recognize more connections between the OG inspiration. The Bell Witch Project. The Bell Witch so that sums up pretty much my entire history that I had written down. Well, cool. That's our first witch story so far, right? Right. Yeah, I hope, I'll probably got some more coming, though. I hope so. So this was our Tennessee week. Yeah. And our first witch and our first bar. A lot of firsts, but when it's start only... saying that when we've only done three episodes. <laughs> I know. First this, first that. Maybe we'll run out of first one day. Maybe. Firsts. Yes. It'll be Here's it'll hoping. get it'll get harder right now. It's easy to say first bar, first witch, first Tennessee. It's gonna <laughs> get tougher. True. I'm Agreed. not gonna do that every episode because that'll be annoying to everyone. <laughs> Wait, we have to see when we actually run out of firsts. We do. Okay, maybe I will. We've already <laughs> done the accepted. first doll. First doll, first haunted hotel. First haunted cave, first second haunted, haunted cave. cave. Ooh, there was two haunted caves. Yes. So it's not the first haunted cave. There we go. Cool. All right. Well Very I guess. Cool. That pretty much wraps up both of our stories for this week then, right? Exactly. We'll have a new first next week, hopefully. Hopefully. Yep. Well, thank you so much for tuning in to Southern Hospitality, and we hope you leave with some new spooky stories, but also some cool historical facts. Sweet dreams, and watch out for them witches. <laughs> All right, see you next week. Bye. Bye.